Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again to Kishwaukee Bible Church, especially if you're visiting with us today. My name is Jesse, and I'm the pastor here, have the privilege of being the the pastor here, and we're gathered this morning not only to sing the praises of God, but to once again come under the power of God's Word. And that's because it's through God's Word that we get to know God's Son, that we get to know what it means to follow Him. And we're doing that today as we continue in our series, The Songs of Jesus, a series in which we're looking at the book of Psalms, the songbook of the Old Testament, which were the songs that that both shaped Jesus' life and that Jesus came to satisfy. And our hope is that in this series, by plugging in Jesus' playlist, the songs that shaped Jesus' life would shape our lives as well. As they, as they grow in us, a whole other level of appreciation for who he was and who he came to be and the work he came to do. And so far in this series, we've looked at the two Psalms that stand at the beginning of that playlist, this playlist of the Old Testament that together set the tone and trajectory for all of the songs, all of the Psalms that follow. And we've seen so far from Psalm 1 that this songbook of the Old Testament is all about getting God's people back into God's Word and in a significant way about getting God's Word further into God's people. Why? Well, because Psalm 2, the hope of God's people is found in God's King, the one God's word is all about. God's promised king, who God had promised would come from the line of a man named David, to be a king like David. A David that we're introduced to in this playlist in Psalm 3. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to Psalm 3, What we'll be looking at today, in which I'm going to begin by reading, again, from Psalm 3, verses 1 to 8. And you can follow along with me as I do that. This is God's Word. It starts off with this title, which is part of the text. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. 
Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we're introduced today to David, described once as a man after your own heart, but described here as a man on the run. I pray that looking at David, we would see through David that better David that was still to come. That better David who who came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and for whom we are now waiting to come again. In whose name we pray, amen. Do you remember those times uh, as a kid when either out on the playground or in the parking lot after school or on the bus or, or even sometimes after church on a Sunday? Those times when some argument would inevitably deteriorate into a debate over whose daddy would win in a fight. Do you remember these? That, you better shut up or I'm going to beat you up. Oh, yeah? Well, if you try to beat me up, my dad's going to come in and beat you up. Oh, yeah? Well, if your dad tries to beat me up, my dad's going to come in and beat your dad up. Oh, yeah? And just on and on it went. That my dad's bigger, my dad's stronger, my dad's faster, and in the end, is going to win in a fight. So violent, right? We even had one kid when I was growing up who who was pretty well off, who, who would admit to you that in a fight your dad would win, but said, at least my dad can pay somebody else to come in who's bigger than your dad and beat him up. Even that, though, seemed fair, playing by the rules. What didn't seem fair, though, was was the kids who would turn around and say that while your dad might be stronger than their dad, there was no way your dad was ever going to show up and fight on your behalf. So you might as well pack your bags because without the help of your dad, you weren't nothing. And as time would tell, you wouldn't have his help in the end. Oh, goodness. Talk about taking the soul out of a kid. It wasn't quite to the point of denying your dad's existence, but it was, it was only one step short because what good was having a dad if your dad wasn't going to go to bat on your behalf? If for some reason your dad wouldn't fight for you, or didn't love you enough to give your enemies the licking they deserved. And this, I want you to see, is the taunt that's being aimed at David 
when we're introduced to David in Psalm 3. Except that rather than a taunt about his earthly father, this is a taunt about his heavenly one. A taunt that we're going to look at before we turn to the truth. And then finally, turn to David's trust. The taunt, the truth, and the trust. This is what we're going to be looking at this morning, beginning with the taunt, which David recapitulates in the first two verses of this psalm. And here I want you to see the comparison David draws between his many foes and the many who are rising against him and the many who are speaking of his soul and what they are saying that there is no salvation for David in God. Do you see that back in verses 1 and 2? That David cries, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Which is about as good as saying God isn't there to begin with. Because while not actually denying God's existence, the ones taunting David here are still denying him functionally. Because again, what good is having a dad if for some reason your dad won't go to bat on your behalf? And isn't this the world we live in today? There's a lot of noise coming from those who deny God's existence outright in the public sphere. Who've made a career of it, selling their books and spreading their disbelief and directly calling God's existence into question. The Peter Singers, the Michael Martins, the Daniel Dennett's, the Richard Dawkins. And yet the the vast majority of people still believe in God in some shape or form. Still believe that God does exist. Our best data is that maybe 7% of the world's population is atheistic. 10% of our own country, according to the Cambridge Companion to Atheism. And yet, even in our own Congress... The Congress that's now the most diverse in history. There's still not a single member who openly identifies as one of them, as an atheist. Which is something, given the fact that this year we've added to Congress our our first Muslim women. Our first two Native American women. Our first openly bisexual senator. And yet, however, not one of the 535 members of Congress openly identifies as an atheist. Yet still, of the 90% of our country that supposedly believes that God is out there, how many have given up on the idea that he has any interest in us? Our country is much more atheistic than the numbers show. 
because they believe it, that, that maybe he created this world of a hundred billion galaxies holding together a hundred thousand million stars. But what good is a dad, whether earthly or otherwise, if for some reason dad won't show up when you need dad the most? That God is, at best, an absentee father who gave up custody and contact and hasn't paid child support since the universe was born and has left his kids in the hands of a drug-addicted mother named Chance. Even our day and age is more atheistic than the numbers would suggest. So that David can say for himself, just as he speaks for us, that many, many, many are rising against him, saying there is no salvation for him in God. This is the taunt. But what about second the truth. And here I want you to look at verse 3 and notice that little word, but. Isn't this one of the greatest words in the English language? But. The world is dark, but. Dim and dreary, but. Dull and depressing, but. Wicked and worthless, revolting and vile, fruitless and futile, full of all manner of hatred and horrors. But, but while it may seem so, the truth is something else entirely. That while it may seem that we've been left to ourselves to struggle along and pave our own paths and make our own means and deal with our own predicaments, as if God is neither concerned nor even cares, that it may seem so, but the truth is otherwise. I read this week an article in the Washington Post of a man who's just recently been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And for years now, he's been driving, he worked in government, has been driving an hour into Baltimore to drop his wife off on Sunday mornings at the local parish. And yet just recently with his diagnosis of this terminal illness has begun joining his wife. And he explains in this article, my views on God have not changed, but I can't find any hope anywhere else. So I might as well sit there Sunday after Sunday getting something. And yet for us, how much more that the world may seem so, but the truth is otherwise. 
but is that hinge word that slams the door on the taunt and opens the door to the truth. That things can never get bad enough that not even God can help. Even if they get bad enough that no one but God can help. That's the truth. Which for David has to do with who God is and what God does. Because as one pastor has said, rather than respond to the threats of our enemies by getting emotional, better to follow David in his response of getting theological. See, David says, but, but you, O oh Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head, who God is. And when I cried aloud, he answered me from his holy hill, what God does. Who God is, a, a shield about me. That when the, the world is hurling its insults or the enemy is hurling his lies, God safeguards his own like a shield. Because no matter how many there are or how many are arrayed, if God is your shield, more for you than for MC Hammer, they can't touch this. It was way back in Genesis 15 that God was first called a shield. You remember the story? When he came to a, a man named Abraham who had just won a great battle. But this man had refused the, the spoils of war, saying, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything, lest someone should say, I have made Abraham rich. The very next scene. God shows up and says, Abraham, I am your shield. And your reward will be very great. God is our shield, our security. More than that, he's our glory. He's our worth. The one in whom we find and should find our identity. That we may lose our reputations just like David did. Driven away from his home, his own throne, his own people and palace and possessions. And for his own fault, no less. But that like David, if our worth and identity is found in one who cannot lose his home, who cannot lose his throne, who will never leave his own, then we will never lose our glory. Because God is my shield and God is my glory. And more than that, he is the lifter of my head. Back in 2 Samuel 15, when, when David was fleeing from his son Absalom, when that story is told, when he would have written this psalm, we're told that, that he fled and went up the Mount of Olives that looked back over the city. And that he went 
barefoot and with his head covered, with his head bowed down. But as he went, he went singing, as much as I am bowed down today, God will lift up my head tomorrow because God is the lifter of my head. And though it looks like the the shot clock is almost out, God has a knack for draining it at the buzzer for making fourth down conversions when no one thinks it's possible and for leading the comeback when all the skeptics say otherwise. It's just who God is. It's who God is, which isn't so different or so detached from what God does. That is, David says in verse 4, when I cried aloud, he answered me from his holy hill. That I cried and he answered. But notice that, that God does so, that God answers David from the same holy hill on which we read last week, God set David as a king. And the point is this, that this truth that God does care and God is concerned, that he's not absent and will not abandon, is based not on David's desires, but on God's. Not on David's asking, but on God's intentions. My holy hill that I set my king from which I will answer. You see, I don't answer my kids, the cries of my kids, simply because they ask. Certainly when they ask, but not simply because they ask. I answer because I'm their dad. I help put myself in harm's way because they're mine. And how much more with God? That those he's taken as his own and declared to be his own and branded as his own, why would he do anything but answer them when they cry to him for help? Because we're his. This is the truth. This is the truth of of who God is and what God does, which stands in direct contradiction to the taunt David recounts in verses 1 and 2. While at the same time, directly leading to the trust David articulates in verses 5 to 8. So from the taunt to the truth. Now, the trust. And you'll notice that word, Selah, is is used to divide Psalm 3 into these three sections. It seems to have been a a musical term that that called for a pause of sorts between the, the stanzas and serves, at least here, again, to divide these three sections and leave those listening to figure out what unifies each of them. 
which for this third stanza seems to be the articulation and expression of David's trust in this trustworthy God. A trust that's expressed in what David does, in what David determines, and in what David declares. In, in what he does, that he lies down and sleeps. You see that there? And that he then awakens and attributes it all to the sustaining hand of God. That despite all the circumstances, he's not going to lie awake at night. He's not going to toss and turn in his bed. He's not going to wander the halls wondering or worrying about what's next or what his next move is, about who likes him or doesn't like him, as if worrying would change things any more than someone else wanting him to be king or not. Because it's not about what they want in the end, but about what God wants. I lay my head down, I slept, and I woke. So rather than go nuts over it, he's going to leave it in God's lap as the only one who can do anything about it anyway. He sleeps. It's what he does. His trust is also expressed, though, in what he determines. Uh, Despite the circumstances, verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people, of many being my foes, or many rising against me, or many saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I will determine to pay them no regard, those who have set themselves against me all around. Why? Because God is a shield about me. Because God is a shield about me. And he's got my back when I'm looking forward to the future. And he goes before me, too. And just notice for a second that while being afraid may be a reaction kind of thing, being not afraid is a determination kind of thing based on the fact that God's got this. So if you find yourself afraid and unable to be not afraid, you ought to go back and sing a little more that stanza about the truth that God does got this. Because it's only when the the truth begins to seep in that you'll finally be able to trust. And to have that trust expressed in what you do, in what you determine, and then in what you declare. That to the, the God about whom everyone is rising against you, saying there is no salvation in him, That to that God, you'll declare, arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God. That while everyone is rising against you, you'll cry out to God and ask him to arise against them. And that while everyone is saying, there is no salvation in him. 
That's exactly the point you'll be calling out to tell him, to ask him, to beg him to save. Why? From whence cometh such confidence? Because God is the one who strikes David's enemies on the cheek and breaks the teeth of the wicked. For a guy who has teeth issues, this is about as horrible a thing as you can imagine. Let me point out, though, that this is not at this point a prayer. We'll get there later in the Psalms to prayers like this, and and we'll deal with prayers like this and figure out how we can pray like this. But let me point out, this is not here a prayer. It's a declaration. It's what God does. Before, and before David ever prays this later in the Psalms, before we get to praying this ourselves, David declares it here in Psalm 3. That this is what God does. And that you can trust him to do it. That he will slap the enemies of his own upside the head. Shame them for shaming his own. And that he'll strike them such that they won't have any teeth left the next time they try to strike again themselves. It's what God does. But here it's important to remember that these are the enemies. David is speaking of the enemies, not first of you or me, but the enemies of God's chosen king. See, our tendency is to take a a psalm like this and make it all about us when it's not. Because before this became part of the songbook of the Old Testament, this was a psalm of, of David, a psalm of the king. And others were invited to sing it for themselves. We can sing it for ourselves today only insofar as we sing it after and sing it under and sing it in God's King. Such that we can't just impose on this psalm the pictures of my enemies or who I decide are my enemies or who I, who I think are my enemies at all. So if you're just going to like take this psalm as a dartboard and pin those pictures up to it and ask God to start throwing. That's not how this works. Because as David says in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's His. It's His to give and His to grant. And the Lord saw fit to extend that salvation to David, that under David, God's salvation, God's blessing would be extended to God's people. Selah. So this is about not the enemies of you and me, 
directly. This is about the enemies of God and God's king. The enemies of David. And yet, even here, when we're introduced to David for the first time in the Psalms, it doesn't take too much to see that he's simply standing in for someone else. Isn't it strange? Isn't it strange that of all the psalms that could have stood on the front end of the 75 or so psalms of David, that this is the one that leads them off? Is this the one you would have picked? Isn't it strange? Because this isn't, getting, this isn't David at his best. Or even a psalm taken from the beginning of David's life when David was getting better. Yeah, maybe running from Saul, but, but at least running toward the throne. Rather, this is a psalm from the end of David's life after he lost the throne and was running from his own son. When, when David had already proved that he was not the king that he was meant to be. A after he used his political power to, to take a woman that wasn't his. And then took a life to cover it up. This is the story that follows. He did it. These are the consequences for his actions lived out in his family. That when he's running here, when he fled from Absalom, his son, these were the direct consequences of his own sin against God. Is that the psalm you would have picked? To introduce us to God's chosen king. It's so strange, so much. It's so strange that, that even here when we're introduced to David for the first time in the Psalms, it doesn't take much to see that he's standing in for someone else. That he's merely holding the place. For one against whom all evil would rise as a foe. For one who, who, who many would look at hanging on a cross some thousand years later and assume that for that one there was no salvation in God. And yet one who would cry aloud and be answered like none other before. When in his resurrection, dad would finally show up and not only break the teeth, but crush the head of the greatest enemy of all time. In order to bring God's blessing to God's people through God's chosen king. This is about so much more than we make it when we sing it about ourselves. It's about Jesus Christ. <laughs>
the son that David didn't flee from, but in which, in whom David was finally found. And in light of that, let me encourage you this week to do two things. First, to rethink the enemy lines. And second, to renew your hope in God and God's chosen king. First, to rethink the enemy lines of who your enemy is and who your enemy isn't. Because the the enemy lines are not drawn based on what we decide or what we feel or what we think or redrawn based on, on who we're ticked off at or who's offended us most recently or just who we like and who we dislike. And neither are they drawn around political parties or nationalities or social agendas or anything of that sort. The enemy lines are drawn solely based on whether one aligns themselves with David's greater son, Jesus. Because it's only through allegiance, in allegiance to David's greater son, that we align ourselves with the one who chose David to begin with. This is the dividing line between enemy and foe. between enemy and friend. And I'd encourage you, even this week, to rethink those lines for yourself, which, which means that you should lay down our arms. We should lay down our arms when, when we're looking at someone who professes and demonstrates in their life a commitment to Christ. We all make mistakes. We all mess up. But these are not the people we ought to be picking a fight with. And at the same time, it means we ought to stop being so chummy with those who are openly aligning themselves against our king. Because it's not good for them. And it's not good for us. Pray for them. Talk with them. Share with them. But stop making like we're on the same side. Rethink the enemy lines. And second, renew your hope in God and God's chosen king. Because, you know, as bad as things seem, things are never for us as bad as they seem. Because God is still on the throne. Jesus is still reigning. And he's someday going to return to put one last enemy to death. Death itself. So renew your hope this week in God and God's chosen king. And and sing this psalm with David. Why not even take this week to memorize it? One verse a week. You'll be done by next Sunday morning. Commit it to memory. Sing it. Make it the song of your heart after and under 
and in David's greater son. Bringing your questions to God, but at the same time, putting your confidence in God. Because in Jesus, God already went to bat on our behalf. In Jesus, he already fought for us. And in Jesus, he already proved that he loved us enough to give our enemies the licking that they deserved. And that truth should quiet the taunts of this world and grow in us a trust in God's Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray it would do just that. I pray as this playlist becomes our own, echoes in our hearts, repeats in our minds, that we would begin to trust you like we ought. I pray you would do it for our good and the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. An author who has been suggesting that we as a culture ought to read more books, listen to more music, stare at more art that creates in us an ache that cannot be satisfied in this world. I pray in part that Psalm 3 would do that for you as you leave looking to David's greater son. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K I S H Bible.org.